Welcome back to Stage Left with me, Jen Harvey, after a long hiatus, which has included the COVID-19 lockdown. My guest this episode is Krishna Istha, who I interviewed back in 2019. Krishna is a London-based performer, writer, live artist, and theatre maker whose work explores gender politics and queer and trans culture. Their work is about their experiences of trans life. They aim to make performance about trans experience that's accessible, hopeful, and funny, something many people don't expect from either live art or art about trans experience. Having worked with some of the greatest queer live artists and comedians, including Get in the Back of the Van, Ursula Martinez, and comedians Hannah Gadsby and Zoe Coombs-Marr, in 2019, Krishna created their solo stand-up comedy show, Beast, directed by Coombs-Marr. Beast is a comedy show meets performance art show. It's sort of about loads of funny experiences about being trans. It's essentially an hour of just silly jokes. There's heaps of like weird trans dick jokes in there. Have you noticed how most comedians are cis white men making jokes about their dicks? Taylor's oldest time, really. So I'm being super radical right now, being a trans brown person, making jokes about their dicks. <laughs> Singular there, plural dicks. So how come you decided that you wanted to make a comedy show about being trans? Because um, often they're narratives we see of trans experiences in TV, theatre, film, etc. often about how trans people have sad lives and they're suicidal or they get murdered or it's always something to do with trauma. And I was really, because I like comedy and all the work I make is comedy, I was really interested in making a show that was purely funny from start to finish and wasn't a traumatic experience for trans people to see. Yeah. Essentially, I want to make a comedy show for trans people because I was like, I don't get to see comedy shows performed by trans people. And you talked in an interview that I read about being hopeful, telling the funny and happy yeah. stories. That's part of your agenda as an activist and a performer, would you say? Yeah, no, definitely. Because yeah. I think our lives are more than trauma, but it seems like that's the only way people can understand mm. trans experiences and but they're like we don't understand how you could be a fully functioning happy person that can make jokes for some odd reason being woke is exhausting sometimes i wish i could just take a nap it's hard carrying the expectations of a community on your shoulders like i'm trying to do this stand-up comedy thing it's a heavy weight to carry i mean I know us trans-masculine people have a reputation for being obsessed with weightlifting, but do I have to deadlift the entire trans experience every time I step on stage? And so what kind of stories of joy did you want to tell in Beast? It's mostly observational, so I spent a few months just writing down bits and bobs of things that happened that were funny, like... There's a section in there by Louis C.K., American, um, very famous comedian, who was obviously called out for sexually harassing heaps of people he worked with. I guess he was known for, like, whipping his dick out in front of people. Am I allowed to say that on a podcast? Yeah. Good. <laughs> <laughs> and he did this show, 
like a comedy show like it was his comeback show it was a year after he'd been called out and you know he was like I lost millions of dollars and he started doing this show and obviously the audience was really into it it was in America just the worst jokes ever like there was one where he was like all Asian men are women and they have small dicks and a lot of stuff that directly connected to my identity and I was like I'm gonna use that because that's just like gold and so there's a bit in it where I go, oh, I'm a performance artist, so... And I, I sort of go to touch my pants, like, as if I'm going to take them off. People are pretty obsessed with trans people's genitals, so since I'm a performance artist and all, I figured... <laughs> I'm not getting my dick out! Who do you think I am, Louis C.K.? <laughs> and then I'm like, I don't have my dick with me now. It's in my bum bag backstage. <laughs> and then I'm like... Have you noticed how bum bags have made a comeback? It's a trans agenda. And people <laughs> laugh at that because I'm like, actually, it's something I've been thinking about because actually trans people, when they go out, they do put their dicks in their bum bags. If you're like going out to a kink night or a club <laughs> night and you're like, oh, I just want to fuck someone in the bathroom. How are you going to do that with your <laughs> dick in your bum bag? But it's something that other people don't know. Yeah. So some people think I'm kidding. And I'm like, no, people actually do that. So just things like that. So I think it's very like specific humor that's very relatable to trans people but at the same time other people think it's a joke because it's still a funny image yeah yeah so i guess stuff like that you talk as well about stand-up comedy and live art so how is live art informing your stand-up comedy the form of the show from start to finish is i'm trying to figure out how stand-up comedy works and that yeah. i got really interested as a live artist and as a researcher mm. mm-hmm. with the form of comedy <laughs> So, why is this performance artist doing stand-up comedy? Thanks for bringing it up again, Sir Madam. Seems like a relevant question to return to at this point in the show. <laughs> Maybe I'm doing performance art. Just kidding. You can't just do performance art. Performance art does you. <laughs> All my performance artist friends are gonna disown me after they see the show. <laughs> That's also a joke. Performance artists don't have friends! (laughs) It is sort of just a stand-up comedy show, but there's little aspects in it that I think fall into live art. Like, I take my clothes off, and I'm like, is this performance art? Is this stand-up comedy? Because I sort of... I say that a classic joke structure, when I researched, was that you set up an assumption, and then you break that assumption for the audience. So you say something, and then you Mm -hmm. flip it somehow, and that's the trigger for laughter. (laughs) And essentially I tie it in the end with myself being the joke because as a trans person, people read me as a man. But the flip is that I've got a vagina. So I take my clothes off and I'm like, this is performance art. And it's my best joke because this is an assumption that's being broken. And you said that, I mean, earlier you said something like you're always telling jokes. Comedy is your form. I think of like Bambi Sexsmith. Yeah, was a role that you created at the Ducky Heterosexual Summer School. Yeah, and Bambi. Did you see that? No, I watched your video. I watched oh, the video yeah, okay. online, and yeah. I heard about Bambi. Bambi's yeah. fab, I think. <laughs> yeah, Bambi goes around. Well, you can describe. What does Bambi do? Bambi is a queer conversion therapist, <laughs> or rather, queer kinky conversion therapist, and she converts straight people to queer using kink. So yeah, clearly stand-up comedy and laughs are a really important part of the way you approach performance. Mm. But you also say in an interview I read, and I'm clearly this is informing what you're doing, that 
stand-up comedy is really dominated by cis white men. Uh-huh. So is, is that a territory you wanted to take back or how available did it feel to you? Not very available. Yeah. I think like thinking back at Bambi, like all the stuff I've ever made has been funny, but I didn't really have the language for stand-up comedy. I didn't even know what stand-up was mm. when I was doing Bambi because I never watched it yeah. because it's not often that you see queer and trans people doing comedy and often it's cis white men making transphobic jokes or racist jokes and I'm like why would I watch that so I never really had a language for stand-up comedy but then I saw a few queer stand-up comedians I think it was in 2017 I was in Edinburgh and I saw Zoe Coombsma's show and Hannah Gadsby's show and they're both queer Australian comedians and I was like that speaks to me on many levels and I was really struck by how accessible the form was. I was really interested in trying to make the politics of my work at that point make it more accessible to an audience that might not understand anything about it. Yeah, right. And Zoe is also, well, you've collaborated with her on yeah. uh, Wild Boar. Yeah. And also she directed Beast. Beast. Yeah. 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 So that did your collaboration start with Wild Boar, the show that she made also with... Ursula Martinez and Adrian Truscott. Uh-huh, yeah. Is that when you started collaborating? Yeah. That's when I met her and really loved working with her on yeah. Wild Ball. And also she's a queer standard comedian who understands exactly where I was coming from. Yeah. So that through Hannah and Zoe, you saw the possibilities of what queer stand-up comedy could do. Yeah. That's nice to know. Yeah. Um, I take the point about stand-up comedy being something that lots of audiences are familiar with and it being something that you wanted to tap into. So was yeah. that deliberate? You wanted to... Not just speak to a live art audience, but you yeah. also wanted to speak beyond a live art audience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think with Beast, I really wanted to make a show that the experience was recognisable and relatable to like a queer and trans audience, especially a trans audience, but also for the show to maybe uh, encapsulate an experience that a non-queer and trans audience might have never heard before or wasn't used to hearing in that way. So in terms of the audiences that you want to see it, so I mean, do you imagine that you might perform in a stand-up comedy venue as well as in a theatre? Like, this is something that Lucy McCormick has talked about as well on the podcast. Uh, you have her interest in trying to perform outside of the kind of the sacred temples of live art yeah Yeah, the bubble of live art does that appeal to you uh yeah definitely and when um zoe and i were making the show earlier this year she took me to my first like mainstream stand-up night and since i've been doing bits of it at random non-live art non-queer spaces Still, I think, like, alternative comedy Mm -hmm. venues where they're used to seeing women on stage (laughs) and they're used to seeing some people of colour on stage. So it's still spaces that I still feel some comfort level in, not, like, completely on a all-cis male lineup or anything. And I really enjoy being in those spaces, being the weird performance artist (laughs) trying stand-up comedy. If you don't know what Grindr is, it's uh, sort of like a drive through McDonald's for the gays. <laughs> it's open 24-7. Uh, it's got an extensive menu, and depending on what you feel like on the day, you've got options. You always think it'll lead to something saucy, but in the moment, it's always disappointing, and you end up with a sticky mess in the back of your car. <laughs> Sometimes you feel a bit gross after, but you wash it down with coke and ice. <laughs> I was thinking one of the things I like about stand-up comedy and the way you perform it as well is that it allows both storytelling, 
which mm-hmm. is really important, I think, to what you're doing in Beast, but also charm. I think you have to charm an audience in lots mm-hmm. of ways, and I think you have charm as a performer. Oh, uh, so <laughs> I think those are part of the things that work for me with it. You have amazing costume as well, like a kind of American football thing. Where, where did that come from? <laughs> Funny story. <laughs> so the, mm-hmm. the football top is a top I bought from Primark like six years ago. <laughs> And the reason I wear it in pieces, because I'd been trying the bit about like taking my pants off and it had to be really smooth for it to work. Like I Mm -hmm. couldn't like waste time taking my buttons off and Mm -hmm. stuff because then people knew what was coming and then it didn't really work. And so we were like, we have to find a way to make it as quick as possible. So he was like, what's in your suitcase that you can cut up and you don't mind cutting? And I was like, I guess this thing because I've had it for six years and I guess it's time to throw it away so uh, we cut it and that's what became the costume <laughs> but then it also gives you this like kind of archetypal masculinity as your costume yeah I didn't even think it about that till it wasn't now. a design okay no it wasn't at all it was just a convenience and last minute make do and it's great I mean you also have a you've got a water bottle with you on stage like you kind of look like athletic I guess is partly what I'm getting at yeah you know? oh that's interesting you said that because mm. the water bottles actually with for it to look stand-up. Because I was like, Zoe, why do stand-up comedians have bottles of water on a stool on stage when no one ever drinks it? I'm like, I've never seen anyone take a sip from it. What is the point of having it? Because I think I was also interested in the form, so I was like yeah. looking at these things while watching it that maybe yeah. other people like, don't. What's the scenography? And yeah, why is it like, like that? Why, yeah. yeah, I was like, and why is it always a stool? And then she was just like, oh, it's actually the reasoning is sometimes you want to give them more time to laugh. So if they're not laughing, you go take a sip and then that prompts them to laugh more. What we ended up with is that at some point I go to pick up the bottle of water like as if it's, I just need a sip of water and it's attached, it's glued to the chair. And so when I pull the water bottle, the entire chair moves. And then I try that like three times because that's the comedy rule, like rule of three. And then eventually I just pick the entire chair up and I drink the (laughs) bottle like with the chair upside down. So it's just bits like that that we translated to performance art. That's really interesting to me. And one of the things I'm really interested in this podcast is the ways that artists make work. Mm -hmm. So you've just described how you've worked with Zoe there a bit, like seeing stand up and thinking about what the scenography of stand up looks like and stuff like that and, and improvising with what you've got. You have an amazing pedigree of performance, I think, of the people that you've worked with that you, I presume you've learned from, uh-huh. um, like the Ducky Homosexualist Summer School and yeah. um, Get in the Back of the Van and the Arcola Queer Collective, Collective yeah. the Butch Monologues by Laura Bridgman, directed by Julie McNamara. So yeah. an amazing CV you have. Yeah. So yeah, so it just, I'm wondering, yeah, like how, how you made it, what kind of approach yeah. you took. Yeah, well, I think it started last year. I was in New York at the same time that Hannah Gatsby, the queer Australian comedian, was. And I was really getting obsessed with stand-up comedy. And I was just like, I really want to learn how to write a joke. And I want to learn it well. So I went to Hannah and I was like, can you teach me how to write a joke? Mm. And so I spent a few months, like, learning, editing. And she sort of helped me put, like, a little 10-minute set together. And then I kept doing this 10-minute set at, like, queer and trans places. And I was like, oh, people are really liking it. Mm So I took that 10 minute set, went to Zoe and I was like, I don't want to make more of this. I sort of started making notes on my phone of everything funny that was happening or that sort of related to other stuff in that 10 minute set. And um, also I'd done this thing called Culture Lab 
at Arts House in Melbourne um, and Culture Lab was like a grant they gave me for an idea that I pitched. Um, I was looking at what a contemporary version of Beauty and the Beast would be. Mm-hmm. I was watching it with my nephew who was at that point maybe five or something and I found myself in my head sort of explaining the character of the Beast in relation to my transness because mm-hmm. the Beast in the story transitions from this prince to this big brown hairy creature and the depiction of the prince was so different from the depiction of the beast in the movie where he's then aggressive and violent and threatening and and I sort of connected it to how black and brown masculinity is depicted in mainstream media mm-hmm. and so I was really interested in looking at how the beast was this trans masculine person of color and maybe Belle was I don't know a lesbian and I, I was like oh there's things in it that really connected to a trans experience like the rose in the disney version but also in the original version gives the beast like x amount of time before there's no going back he has to find true love before the last petal falls okay um and i sort of connected it to taking testosterone and how there's a certain amount of time until you can never go back. As in, you can go back, but there's certain things that can't go back, like Mm. your voice drops and your facial hair grows and you can't actually reverse those changes. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you stop before that point, you Mm -hmm. could just go off it and that's all right. So I sort of explored that as part of Culture Lab. And then they were like, oh, do you want to come back and make the show? And I was like, yes, but I also want to do this other thing, which is stand-up comedy. So I sort of like (laughs) mashed them together because I really wanted to do this, but I also wanted to do that. So I guess when we came to the table, we had a storyline and we had funny things about being trans. And then we sort of went through it and we mapped out a journey that was just in the first week me and Zoe were working together. We didn't really have (laughs) anything yet. And then we had four weeks to make it before it opened. And pretty much a lot of that time was we'd work together from like 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. And a lot of it was a lot of chat, a lot of writing, a lot of editing, so Mm. much editing. Mm -hmm. And every night I'd go home and then edit the entire script for a few hours. So when we came the next day, it was almost a different script. Um, it was really a learning experience because I've never worked like that but Zoe yeah. obviously has because yeah. a lot of the work she makes is text heavy and comedy and is so she's so good at like being like you've got to cut those two words and then it's perfect and it's so okay. weird it's like yeah. it's a language I had to learn over the month yeah. but I found that by the end I was like oh yeah I get it now an important part of comedy and your work is also really physical and embodied so how did you stand it up and if you change the script every day did you have to keep re-memorizing it? Or? Yeah, I didn't memorize it till the day before it opened, really. Wow. <laughs> um, which is, it's a lot of text in an hour. It's just pure text yeah. pieces. There's nothing else in it. Yeah. And it's also because they're jokes. You, I've got to learn them word for word. Like, yeah. I cannot mess it up because otherwise yeah. a punchline doesn't work. <laughs> but well, Zoe was like, it's a very comedy thing to try material out in front of people. So you do little sections in different places and then you know if a joke works or not that's sort of how we put it up on its feet but we didn't do a lot of physical work it was mostly just learning it and then I would do it and then Zoe'd be like can you try it a different way or a lot of it was just like a week before we were just like let's just do it we were talking when you came in about how you perform here in the UK and also in Australia a lot Mm. and also in New York especially in the States 
I was, or a little bit. I'm wondering about what it's like performing in those different contexts and how audiences respond to what you're doing in those different contexts. I've done Bambi Sexsmith in all three places and I think it was funny because I think that's when I realized that actually humor is different in different places which I think you know yeah. in the back of your mind but you don't realize until I think I did it in New York and like no one laughed. People oh. were just like, okay. They didn't really understand it was meant to be funny. <laughs> oh. Whereas when I did it in London, people definitely got it because I think a lot of the humour in it is very specific to queer culture here because obviously I made it while living here. Mm. Um, but I think also when I did it in Australia, people relate. But I don't know if it's because Australians also look outside their country for like films and theatre and stuff like that. Whereas I think maybe America has their own like culture to it so they don't necessarily maybe understand yeah. British humour whereas Australians might. Um, what about attitudes towards race in both, say, Britain and, and Australia? How has that affected your performance making, would you say, in it? Well, I think here, attitudes to race are definitely different to Australia's attitudes to race. And it's interesting because I think people often go, oh, Australia's so racist, it's terrible. But then I'm like, so is Britain? It depends on your circles of people. But I think the difference is in queer, trans, marginalised communities and circles in Australia seem to think a little bit more about them being on stolen land and indigenous rights and actually uh, they are colonizers or white people definitely understand that they are part of the problem essentially whereas I feel like in Britain they can sort of sweep it under the rug because there's no second level to it because you're they're like oh but I belong here this is my land I don't know if that makes sense. I, I feel like I understand. maybe so people, this increasing awareness about what settlers have done to indigenous peoples. Yeah, whereas I feel like here they don't really understand what Britain's done in other yeah. places, or you don't learn it in textbooks in schools. No. So it's, there's no history of colonialism. Whereas there, you're like it's so prevalent and it's there yeah. because it's it's still impacting people's lives. Absolutely, you, and you seem to be really involved with the cutie park scene in Australia and I'm just looking through my notes to remember the name of the kind of club night that you've the been The Cocoa Butter Club. Yeah, the yeah. Cocoa Butter Club. Can you tell us a bit about what the Cocoa Butter Club is, please? Yeah, so it actually started here and it still oh. runs here. So there's a London version of it um, and it was started by Sadie Sinner who's a queer cabaret performer and essentially it's a performance night that showcases performers of colour and I guess especially it's a safe space for queer and trans people and women and marginalised folks often us as performers of colour found that we were the only performers of colour on Mm -hmm. a bill and often we found that the argument was that producers couldn't find these performers Um, so Sadie was like I'll create a website I'll put everyone on it if the next time producer goes I don't know where to find them I'm going to be like there's hundreds of people on this website (laughs) Um, and so I was one of the first few people on the website And so when I moved to Australia, I was like, oh, I really want to do something like that because there was a lot going on in terms of like QDIPOC representation and performance. I I felt like almost here people were talking about it, whereas there was just like, there was nothing. And I was like, oh, maybe I could like collaborate with someone and make it happen here and that'd be really exciting. So I worked with Danny Weber, who's a drag QTA Park performer in Melbourne and we sort of worked with Sadie and we set up uh, an Australian version. Just to go back to touring, so this is partly about your international life, <laughs> which I'm obviously fascinated by. <laughs> it's really not that fun no. or glamorous. I mean, it's not not fun, but it's uh, not as interesting as you would think. <laughs> well, and I guess, you know, that's the point I was going to come to, which you make 
in something that I read or listened to around the challenge of getting tea sometimes when you're touring or traveling. Uh So the kind of not joined upness of medical health care, especially for trans people. Yeah. So because I'm interested in the conditions in which artists make work, that seems like a really important condition. Like, how do you, who are a trans person, particularly experience the challenges of touring? I mean, I wouldn't say it's the biggest challenge, but it is challenging. Um, (laughs) I almost feel like it needs to be turned into like a resource pack for other trans people to have to tour because you learn like there's obviously things like going through airports and using Mm. toilets and like my passport still says female on it and I don't really want to change it because I don't mind but then it's like having to like explain to people all the time I've sort of just realized with borders and stuff that I just don't mention it and they just don't even look at the marker which is interesting Mm. Um, you know how you've got to fill out landing cards whatever I just I make sure I take the right box and it's almost like they just look at the passport they look at the box and they're like I think I've been asked maybe twice and I do have a letter from my doctor that says I'm trans mm-hmm. um but also yeah like getting testosterone or like how do I keep up on my bloods or so keep testing your blood to make yeah. sure that things are okay and everything yeah what's the deal with when you're on tour and you've got no access to your medical needs because trans people are overlooked pretty much everywhere in the world. And the most logical solution is for you to crowdsource your hormones via Instagram. <laughs> While straight people are like, where are the good coffee shops in Brooklyn? Or can I get smashed avocado in Birmingham? <laughs> I've got to be like, where's the tea and who can shoot me up in a public toilet? <laughs> Where does that sound? I like post on Facebook and Instagram, like, does anyone know a trans person wherever I am in the middle of nowhere who might have a spare testosterone shot? And I think I did that for three years. Wow. And every time someone came through. And even if someone didn't have testosterone and I got it from someone else, or if I needed someone to give me the shot, because a lot of the places when you're on tour, you don't have like healthcare, you could have travel insurance Mm -hmm. or whatever, but it doesn't really cover trans things. So you could go to the doctor if you have a cold or whatever, but the nurse isn't going to give you your testosterone shot. But I just, I just ask trans people and they do it. It's amazing how community just comes through. Yeah. It's quite moving really. Yeah. Yeah. Why did you decide you wanted to be a performance maker? And I suppose partly I'm asking why are you using performance to speak to the audience that you want to speak to? Well, at this point, it's because I have no other skills. <laughs> and if I wasn't doing this, I would have no other job. No, I also do like doing it. I think I don't really like being in front of people. I you want... don't or you didn't? I didn't. I, I think I'm still shy unless I know the person. Okay. So if you saw me outside, like if I finish a show and I come outside, I don't really want to be there. <laughs> or okay. like I don't want to chat to people. I don't like yeah. like curtain calls. I just... Yeah. I just like doing the show and that's yeah. about it. <laughs> but I think that's I really, really interesting. So you don't have a kind of show off gene, but something else is motivating you. Like in the moment of performance, does, is that pleasurable? Sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think it depends. But I think what I really do enjoy is making it. I thought I wanted to be like an interior designer because I didn't really know what theatre was because I grew up in India and it's not really a thing. We didn't like go to the theatre or anything. And then I went to art school and I when I did my foundation year and I'd like make things and then 
the material things yeah like, like, sculptures like interiors or, or whatever like things like I didn't really know how to make it I was really bad at it but I'd like make <laughs> bits and then it, it was quite extravagant so people were like maybe you want to be a set designer I was like oh is that a thing so I got interested in that and so I thought I wanted to be a set designer and then I'd make these really bad sets because I am bad <laughs> at like making things and I'd make them but then I'd have like these wild stories and then my tutors were like maybe you want to make one <laughs> So it was sort of just a random evolution finding. Yeah. Yeah. So how did it feel when you started making performance? Having come at it, you hated it. (laughs) I hated performing. I was like, oh, I want to come up with these ideas, but I don't want to do them. And I remember I I applied for something called the National Theatre Young Studio, um, which is like a youth company they had at the National Theatre for a few years. They don't do it anymore. I applied as a set designer. This is when I was 18, maybe. And the person who ran it, Rob Watt, I still remember, he sort of, like, forced me to just perform. Like, he was like, everyone's going to explore these different things. And I remember doing it and being like, I hate this so much, this is so terrible. And then eventually I loved it. And actually, the first time I met Lucy McCormick was while doing that. And Get in the Back of the Van came in to do a workshop. And I remember going, that's what I want to do. That's amazing. Yeah. Because it was just what we made by the end of the day. was so It was really playful. And I think they had a very specific way of making work. Yeah. That's definitely influenced me. Because you could have, I mean, you alternatively also could have become a performance writer or a director. But you've ended up being in your work. Do you think it's, is it important that you're embodying the work that you're making? I think it's become important because I've realised that actually I don't have any representation of myself. Mm. And so even if I did make work for someone like me I'm like who would be (laughs) I'm sure there's people out there but I'm like I'm also very like specific about how it's performed so it just made sense for me to be in it but also I think it's cost effective it's like (laughs) I don't have to pay someone else to do it and also I think like I could have become a playwright I could have been a director whatever I think a lot of those like specific jobs are connected to resources and connected Mm. to other things whereas with this I could just find my thing and then just do it What do you think is the biggest challenge to you as a performance maker now? Getting people to take me seriously, even though I'm trying to be goofy and like make comedy. And I think it's less to do with the form of work and more to do with how institutions are run. Even while working on like other stuff with other people, something that often happens to me is like I'd walk into a space or a theatre early in the morning for a rehearsal or whatever and people stop me they might not stop anyone else but they'll stop me and they're like are you in the wrong place this is do you know where you are and I don't know if it's connected with race or if it's connected with me looking like a 15 year old boy or if it's it, it could be so many different things but that happens to me repeatedly where people are like you can't go in there but I've just watched three other people that I'm working with walk through that door with no problems. And I think I think that also relates with trying to pitch work. Loads of marginalised performers have this, I think, where people assume that maybe your work isn't that good because they assume you might not have the skills or the experience or the resources because that's just what they're trained to think. Which is also interesting because now mm. I think people are trying to like diversify things, mm. but then they're the same people they're also keeping out at the same time if that makes sense yeah yeah Yeah. that's a sad anecdote to hear from you I'm sorry one of the questions I like to ask on this podcast is besides money what other thing would help you make work besides money (laughs) Um, 
I think mentors. Yeah. Often something I think about is how different sorts of people that are kept out of performance for whatever reason don't really get training. Like they might not have been to like drama school. They might not have whatever. They might not be trained and whatever if it's Mm. internships or whatever it is. And I feel like a lot of the work I've been able to do well is because someone's like taken me through it or has taught me how to like jump through the hoops. Yeah, like so like Hannah who helped you with a joke and Zoe who's been a mentor. Yeah, and I think that it definitely upskills you Mm -hmm. and makes you able to make work that you might not be able to make otherwise. What do you want to make next? So after Beast, what's lined up after Beast? What I'm making in the next year is I'm working with Travis Alabanza and Emma Franklin, who are both trans theatre makers, and we're writing a new show commissioned by Roundhouse in London for 2020 for a company of young trans people to perform, which I'm really excited by. That's, I think, the first time someone's gone, you can have anything you want. And we were like, what? And they were like, yeah, just tell us. What do you need? And we were like, wow, no one's ever asked us that before. But it's been really amazing because we really want trans people at every step of this. So we want trans set designers, lighting designers, stage managers, trans filmmakers. And we were like, actually, a lot of those roles, especially the backstage roles, we don't know people that are skilled enough to do those jobs. Is that because... You know, when we talk about diversity, people are really obsessed with putting us on stage because then they can be like, box, take, we've seen them. But they don't really care about anyone who wants to do any of the backstage jobs where they aren't seen in the diversity process. And so we were like, what can we do to change that? And Brown has been great. And they've like, how about we pay someone to shadow this other person? Fabulous. and we were like, great, because that creates more jobs for trans people and they get upskilled. So it's like dream project. That's where... really inspiring. Yeah. And the p- performance that you're making with Emma and Travis and yeah. young people is going to be about, so do you know yet? We're going to write a script because you're expected to make certain sorts of work. And then when's the last time someone went, this trans person is a playwright. <laughs> and so we were like, let's write a play. That's right? fun. Yeah. Uh, we definitely want it to be funny. It's definitely not cliched, but we don't really know what it's about. Yeah. So 2020, you've got yeah, time. We've got time. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that sounds amazing. And what is it that you want to make? So maybe you have a solo project in mind. This is like my dream project that I want to make. That's probably never going to happen. I really want to make a trans version of the friends. Like, you know, the American the tele- sitcom yeah. friends. I yeah. just want a funny sitcom with trans people in it. Brilliant. No one steal that idea. I will make that <laughs> but at some point. <laughs> no, in fact, don't steal it. Commission it. Yes, please. <laughs> I'm happy to report that in July 2020, Krishna told me their new roundhouse commission with Emma Franklin and Travis Alabanza is still planned now for 2021. Also, they've been selected as an arts admin bursary artist for 2020-21. And in lockdown, they've been writing scripts for screen. So watch out for that transversion of friends that Krishna was only dreaming of in 2019. The next episode of Stage Left is available now. And it's with the wonderful FK Alexander about her show Violence and her big hit, I Could Go On Singing Over the Rainbow. And while you're there, check out our back catalogue, which includes interviews with Selena Thompson and Split Britches and many more. Thanks for listening from me, Jen Harvey, my producer, Debbie Kilbride, and sound engineer, Gail Gordon.